All right, so I want to start just with a little story this morning. Uh, just last year, uh, last summer, actually, uh, I, had, I came very close to having a big ant problem. I walked out to the end of my driveway and to my garbage can, and I noticed there was quite a line of ants coming to the end of my driveway. And so I started to walk and follow, and I walked about 100 feet to the property line, and the ants were still in the ditch along the road, pretty close to it. And then they go up to my neighbor's wooden fence, and then the army of ants is going along the neighbor's fence about another 100 feet. Granted, this is 200 feet now of ants that I have followed. It's a lot of ants. And they were all headed my way. I eventually found where they were coming from. It was a thick layer of blackberry bushes that I did not go into to see exactly where they were coming from, but that was good enough for me. And I said, we have a problem. So my neighbor and I, we put out about 15 of these little poison stations along the way. And the next day I went out to check one of them that was closest to the end of my driveway. And what I saw is now that I not just had, I didn't just have one ant line army, I now had two. And they were going right to that station. And I'm not quite sure what an ant fight looks like, but I'm pretty sure I was witnessing ants fighting as these two armies now came together. Because the, the second ant line said, hey, it wasn't fair that someone put out food for the first line of ants, so they wanted what their neighbors had. So that being said, I went out there basically a week later and there were no trace of ants anywhere, which I was thankful for. But the second line of ants, as they coveted the food, which was poison and unwittingly they just killed themselves. Kind of a bad deal. And I think as we move to the 10th commandment this morning, that's a fitting illustration. Those ants wanted what their neighbor had, but ultimately it led to their death. Thinking they were getting the other ants' treasure, they unwittingly poisoned themselves. And we see, when we see someone with more than what we have, we must beware. The hunger to beg, borrow, or steal our way into what is theirs will ultimately poison us spiritually. So now, for the final time, I would ask you to stand, if you're able to, as we read God's word this morning, Exodus 21, 1 through 17. And just by, by way of just mentioning, this has been a, a great series, but it's been a difficult series in many ways. Those who have preached up here, we have, we have, we have known and we have felt the difficulty. It's convicted us, it's convicted you, and we've, we've walked through that together. Um, but at the same time, it's been good as we examine God's word and God's law. So what this whole series, I hope, has done is point us back to our need for Jesus, our absolute dependence on him. It is him, it is the Lord Jesus Christ that we need. So Exodus 20, Turn in your Bibles. We'll be in the Bible a lot this morning, all over the place, so just keep it handy and open. I'll just give you a warning right now. So Exodus 20, 1 through 17, follow along in your Bibles. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. 
You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything else that is your neighbor's. Lord, I pray as we look into your word for the final time in this series this morning that, uh, Holy Spirit, that you would be the teacher, that we would come away uh, knowing more about you and your love and your saving power, but Lord, also about what you think about sin and law-breaking. So Lord, I pray that you would open us up to your word this morning, that we would come away with a greater understanding and a greater love for you. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. So as we approach this 10th and final commandment this morning, I want to remind you once again of what's been said already. Many times we have heard the word commandment here. When we hear the word commandment, we think, oh, that's restricting. That's something that's not good. It's something that would, that, that's, that's going to steal my joy. But we don't think of it as something that would bring about blessing. But I'll remind you once again of the context, as Brent also did last week, that these commandments came after God had rescued Israel from Egypt. These commandments were not to be a detriment to the people. They, were not, they, were, they weren't put in place to take the joy away. God, being the almighty and all-wise God, put them in place in order to bless. So in other words, God says, hey, if you want to live a life that is full of blessing, here is the recipe for that. And notice when he said that, he gave the commandments after the rescue. It's also been noted that these 10 commandments can be broken up into two sections. The first four have to deal with honoring God, and, then, and, then, and the last six have to do with loving people or our relationship with people. In fact, you've seen this slide before, and I'll put it up again. These commandments have to do with our relationship with God our, and our relationship with people. It's referred to as the vertical relationship with God and then our shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder horizontal relationship with people. Both are critical, and Jesus sums them up this way. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And then here's the horizontal one, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So this morning as we look at the 10th commandment, I will just summarize it, we shall not covet. We shall not covet, and we will look at what that means. 
But I want to mention that there is, it, it, there's nothing wrong with, with having desires for things. There's nothing wrong with saving up to make a purchase. You know, actually, the Bible often speaks of desire in its proper place. Sarah and Hannah had a desire for children. The book of Proverbs encourages us to work hard so we might improve our life situations. It's not wrong to desire the outpouring of God's spirit. So the 10th commandment does not mean to make us unfeeling creatures without hopes or dreams or appropriate ambition. That's not what we're talking about. The Bible says our problem is not that we desire things, but that we desire the wrong things or desire the good things in the wrong way. The issue is really discontentment. The foundation to coveting or covetousness is discontentment. Coveting goes beyond just noticing what our neighbor has. It's seeing it and wanting it for ourselves because ultimately we're not thankful for the blessing that we have. It's seen as is, it's like, I, I need this thing. I need something. And no matter what the cost, even at the detriment of myself or others, I'm going to attain it. It's an unhealthy drive. In a sense, it's what I call, I tell my kids, it's the I want sees. I want it. I want it. So to illustrate that this week, I read of a very wealthy businessman that was disturbed to find a fisherman sitting lazily beside his boat. Why aren't you out there fishing, he asked. Because I've caught enough fish for today, said the fisherman. Why don't you catch more fish than you need, the rich man asked. What would I do with them? Well, you could earn more money, came the impatient reply, and buy a better boat, and you could go deeper and catch more fish, and you could purchase nylon nets and catch even more fish and make more money, and soon you'd have a fleet of boats and be rich like me. The fisherman asked, then what would I do? Well, you could sit down and enjoy life, said the businessman. What do you think I'm doing right now? Replied the fisherman as he looked peacefully out to sea. That unhealthy drive for more sometimes takes us. And church, so easily our drive and desire can turn to discontentment and coveting. We must watch our hearts. So I really could state this commandment in a positive form, and it would be, you shall be content. You shall be content. You shall not covet, and you shall, not, and you shall be content are basically saying the same thing. And it's no coincidence that this is found at the last of this list of commandments. I mean, if we think about it, if you've broken commandment one through nine, even one of them, commandment 10, I think, is automatically tacked on as broken. Why? Well, because if we've done something that's broken God's law, then that means we've naturally wanted to do it our way. We've coveted something different than what God has said. So for this morning, I want to take you to different parts of God's word to show you that essentially God is not messing around when he says, do not covet. And just like the rest of the nine, God is serious about the consequences due to coveting. We're going to be in many places in the Bible this morning, and we're going to, and, and, and I just want to tell you that again, so we're going to jump in. As your Bibles are already open to Exodus, go ahead and flip back to Genesis, about page two or three. And for the, in, in the first place, I want to take you back to the very beginning. The first place I want to go is Genesis, because if we go back to the very beginning, I think what we'll see is coveting happening. 
Unfortunately, we get to the fall in chapter 3, and it's a familiar scene. As Adam and Eve are in the garden, and the serpent comes up to Eve and starts talking to her. Why that's not shocking, I don't know. That's probably a topic for another sermon. But he starts talking to her, and the serpent, the one, the Satan, or Satan, the deceiver, comes up and starts to question God. Now keep in mind, Adam and Eve are in the perfect setting, the perfect garden. They were made to be in perfect relationship forever with God. They were made to be in communion with God. Not the communion we do on the first of every month when we remember what Jesus has done, but the communion as like God walking with them in the garden in the cool of the evening kind of communion. I guess it wouldn't be wrong to say that they were basically in heaven on earth because what ultimately sets heaven apart from everything else is that you'll be present with God. In other words, Adam and Eve had it all. But the deceiver comes up and says... Did God really say? Did they really say you can't eat from that tree over there? I mean, are you sure? Did he really say that? Now, this is just a question, but who's it questioning? It's not really questioning Eve. It's questioning God. But Eve answered, we can eat from any tree but that one. And she actually said, adds or touch it or we'll, or we'll die. So Satan continues to challenge, and he says, well, you'll not die. Really, really what's happening here is God is holding something back from you. The first thing Satan questions, or the first thing that Satan does is question God, and and he makes it seem like it's okay to question God. And, And then Satan says, you know what? God's holding something back. He's holding something back. There's more. Your creator must not be all good because he's holding back what could be yours. This is the intent. And what was he holding back, according to the devil? Wisdom. But it was evil wisdom. He says, if you eat of that tree, you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Which there's some truth to that. So it's not, he's not only questioning God, he has altered what God said, and then he's giving really a devastating promise or the outcome of that. So the serpent said she'd be like God. But here's the thing. She was already like God. How? God intended her to be like God when he made her in his image. She was made in the image of God, created perfectly as God intended. But the devil is very deceptive, and she bought into his argument. And in verse 6 of Genesis 3 is where we'll pick up the story, which reads, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate... And she gave some to her husband, who was also with her, and he ate. Yes, Adam was there. So clearly, this tree wasn't good for food. The term good here is certainly kind of a a going back to the created order when God said everything was good. But this term term good here can mean something that's beautiful or moral. And God determines that. So in the context of Eve, she sees something beautiful... She saw the tree, and it looked good. She saw something beautiful, but she, they, she then usurps God's authority and determines that it's good, and that really leads her to disobedience. Beautiful is not always moral. 
And notice what the verse says. She saw the tree was able to make her wise, and she desired that. That word desire there is key in Genesis 3.6. It is the same word that is used in Exodus 20.17, our verse this morning talking about coveting. Desire and covet, or covet are the same there. Eve is coveting something outside of God's plan. She's desiring something that's not hers to have. The serpent was successful in making Eve think that she misunderstood God. She was deceived, and the consequences are beyond detrimental. Now, not only they would die, but they would also be separated from God. Well before the Ten Commandments were written, we see a heart of covetousness in the center of the first sin. In church, it doesn't end there. Turn your attention over to Joshua chapter 7, if you want to flip there in your Bible. In the storyline of Scripture, what we have here is this is right after Joshua has led the Israel army in the destruction of Jericho. And at the destruction, after the destruction of, or at the destruction of Jericho, the Lord told Joshua to burn everything. Nothing was to be taken from the city except Rahab and her family and, the, and because she had helped the spies when Joshua had sent them earlier. And then all the precious metals were to be put into the treasury. Aside from that, everything was to be destroyed. So essentially, God commanded the people not to keep the spoils of war. But there's a guy named Achan, and he did keep the spoils of war, and he had no small consequence for it. His sin affected the Israel army. The next place they were supposed to go and defeat was Ai. This was not expected to be a difficult, a difficult venture for Israel. It was expected to be a pretty easy takeover, so much so that they just sent some of their army. But what ended up happening is that the men of Ai chased Israel away and actually killed a few of them. Scripture says 36. And this was crazy because they were supposed to be an easy defeat for Israel. What happened? What we see is that the disobedience of one man led to God punishing Israel's armies. Eventually it came out who is to blame for this. As God revealed to Joshua what happened, so Joshua confronted Achan. And here's where it picks up in chapter 7, verse 19. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, I, then I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So here's the familiar pattern. If you've noticed, he saw, he coveted, he took, and he concealed. Much like Adam and Eve saw the tree, coveted wisdom, took the fruit, and then tried to conceal themselves from God. So Achan saw the loot and the spoils of war, and he wanted them. So he took them, and he buried them under his tent. Notice the word coveted. Once again, same word there used in our text this morning in Exodus. This has devastating end for Achan and his family. After they verified the things were indeed buried there, 
in this tent underneath the ground there, he was stoned. But not just him. The consequences were so severe that everything that belonged to Achan was burned and stoned. His family, his tent, his animals. Verse 25 and 26 actually says all that he had, just in case there was any question if there was anything left. They stoned with stones and burned with fire, and they put a heap of stones on them as a reminder to everybody of the consequences of sin. This sin is no small thing to God. You know, sometimes I think we, we might think because, well, there's really no law in our society, in our American culture against coveting. In fact, it's probably encouraged more than anything. There's certainly no law against it. And so therefore, we might lead us to believe that, well, it's not really that bad because it doesn't really hurt anybody. It's, so it's really not that big of a deal. But what we see from the pages of Scripture is that coveting is a serious offense against God, and the consequences are absolutely devastating. The absence of laws in our own society, our own social construct, does not somehow supersede or disregard what God has said. It is clear that God is not messing around when it comes to the sin of covetousness. Next, I want to take you to a New Testament example. And Brent really could have gone here last week because it's more of a passage that sometimes is used in the context of lying. But I want you to turn to Acts chapter 5. And I think what we'll see is that how coveting is oftentimes the step that comes right before lying. They're cousins. So Acts chapter 5. I'll turn there with you. This is a familiar story of Ananias and Sapphira, or Sapphira, if you like it that way. All right, chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you've contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And a great fear came upon all who heard it. I could imagine and then the young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. And after an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And a great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Now, to a lot of you, this passage is at center stage here. What's at center stage of this passage is lying. It's, it's the dishonesty of Ananias and Sapphira. But I want to dig a little deeper and look at the foundation of why the lie had to exist. What led them to being dishonest? I suggest to you that it was covetousness. This becomes a little more clear as we look back a few verses before at the end of chapter 4. 
Sometimes our chapter breaks aren't really that helpful, but if we just read a few before in the story, it becomes helpful to understand. So here it is. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of the lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as had any need. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man, here's the, here's the break here, there's the chapter, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now we see it that way, I think the contrast becomes a little more clear. The problem wasn't the fact that Ananias kept back some of the money from the sale of his field. Peter actually makes that pretty clear in verse 4. It was his property, they could do what they wanted with it, and it was not a sin to own property or to sell something and keep the money. We have a contrast, though, that unfolds between Barnabas and Ananias. Barnabas had committed to lay all the proceeds before the apostles' feet, all the money that he got from the sale of his field, and he did, and he gave it to them, and that was known. So the great sin of Ananias, however, was what I would call almost a double covet, he not only coveted part of the money, which is probably actually the lesser issue, he also coveted some spiritual prestige. In essence, he saw an opportunity to make a double profit. They would gain some spiritual status and make some money on the side. What was it that drove their hearts to do this? Well, they coveted. They coveted, and it led to dishonesty. Their intent on giving money wasn't a selfless act. Instead, they pretended to give all the proceeds because they desired the approval of men for their sacrificial act. And they wanted to be thought of as members of those that were most spiritually noble. They wanted a status. It was based on their desire to look good among men. They wanted to look like they were sacrificially giving, but in reality, what they were doing was trying to buy a good reputation. You know, maybe... A modern example of that would be someone we used to pass the plates in church, or some churches still do that, and they, they get the giving envelopes out, and you just put an empty envelope in. Like, I wanted to look good. You know, maybe this is kind of what we could say Ananias was doing, wanted to gain some sort of prestige. But what comes out of this is a blatant hypocrisy. In the story, we see that hypocrisy, covetousness, and dishonesty are all kissing cousins. It makes me think of the Sermon on the Mount when... Jesus says this in Matthew 6, and I'll paraphrase, but you can find it in Matthew 6, when Jesus said, when you give, don't do it in the public for everybody to see. Do it in secret, and, 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 you'll, and your reward, if you do it in public, your reward is, is in full there, but if you do it in secret, it's much better. And likewise, when you pray, don't do it in front of everybody on the street corners. Go into your inner room or your closet and pray to the Lord in secret. It's not seeking the approval of men that we should be after. And that's what Ananias was doing. So again, we're turned back. What we're turned back to really is the problem of the heart. It's the problem of the heart. And we see this in Ananias and Sapphira. They, they coveted money and they coveted status. You know, to link back to Brent's sermon last week, one of the things he said is people lie for protection and possession. 
Well, they coveted for the same reasons. They wanted to protect their status and possess money and possess status. And the end results were tragic, immediate death. No wonder there was a great fear (laughs) that struck over everybody who heard it. Peter called it out, you're going to die. And she died and he died. Now, to be sure, what we see is the lie at the center stage here. It's a lie to the Holy Spirit, a lie to God, and that's the cause of death. But what was the building block that led to that lie? A covetous covetous heart. They coveted. Church, this is how serious God takes the breaking of his law and the sin of coveting. This this isn't my opinion. This is is the word of God. It's it's not me just talking here. Before us this morning, what we have is the word of God and the examples that he has given, and he's not taking it lightly. Paul in Colossians 3 says to put to death coveting, along with other sins, because on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. All sin, including this one, summons the wrath of God. That's serious. Yes, the believer spared the wrath of God, but we're subject to his discipline. Coveting is not some lesser sin that we shouldn't put to death. It is serious. Let's go to Mark chapter 7. Mark 7, this is Jesus talking about what defiles a person. Now defiles, it might be helpful to have a few synonyms here of what defiles means. I thought for me it's sometimes helpful to get some other words. So it means ruins or desecrates or violates or degrades. So we're talking about what ruins a person or violates or desecrates a person. In other words, this isn't good. And here's what Jesus says does that. Mark chapter 7, starting verse 20. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. It reads much like the Ten Commandments, really. And coveting is right in the middle. Coveting's right in the middle. What this says is that God equates coveting as being as much of a violation of his law as theft as murder, as adultery, as sexual immorality. Coveting's not a different class of sin just because we don't have a law against it in our own society. And notice the common thread between them all. They're birthed in the heart. It comes from the heart. The heart that is desperately wicked, as Jeremiah says, we need a heart transplant. Again, Romans 1 Romans 1 says this, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness. What does that mean? Evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. That's quite a list. They, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. That's a bad list of things. Haters of God, inventors of evil, murderers. Those are like really bad things. And they're all mentioned in the same breath as coveting. Church, again, God's word is not silent on this. 
You know, and in case we leave here today thinking we have this one down and can check the box off, let me read the 10th commandment a bit slower with a few comments maybe put in to modernize it a little bit. So it would say, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. Wow, they sure have a lot of nice stuff. Why can't I have that house? I wish my house looked like it was fixed up by Chip and Joanna Gaines and it could be featured on HDTV. Some of us have done that. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Man, have you seen his wife? She's quite beautiful and a good cook. And she's so patient with the kids. Wish my wife were more like her. Or look at her husband. He helps around the house and he's quite the handyman. Wish my husband were more like him. He breaks stuff. He doesn't fix anything. Why should I be stuck with my spouse when there's more people out there that are surely better than what I have? Or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey. Wish I had a better car. Mine's 10 years old and a piece of junk. Wish I had a dump trailer like my neighbor's, or an RV, I guess, if you're into that. Would be nice if I could go on one of those vacations with our friends, like our friends did. How come all we do is camp at Metzler? I want their parents, their job, their well-behaved kids. Or anything that's your neighbor's. Wish I had the athletic ability they had. Wish I had a normal, quote-unquote, family. Why can't I be smart like them? I'd be so much more popular if I looked like him or her. Why do I have to have it so hard when everybody else has it so easy? Now, after reading them that way, can we see our guilt? I can see mine. <laughs> We've all coveted. And we might be tempted to say, well, I can't help that. I see something nice, and I just think that. But here's the deal. The fact that we're helpless to control the desires does not excuse us from this commandment. Essentially, it shows us how corrupt we are. It shows us our great need. It shows us how desperate we are. It shows us our greatest need is Jesus to come in and change our hearts. Too often we have this mentality that I can just try harder. I can just do better. If I, if I just need to try harder to fill in, just fill in the blank. What do you need to try harder in to fix? There are secular programs that find some success to modify a person's behavior, yes. Many people stop drinking or stop other addictive behaviors by taking part in a program. But if that program fails to acknowledge the root of the problem and that the root of that is sin, then all other things are just band-aids and they fall short. This is what the law does. This is what we've been studying all summer is the law. And the law reveals sin and it reveals we are helpless. Sure, there might be a behavior problem that we can do better at, but the root of that goes deeper and it's connected to our nature. What God's law does is reveal our imperfection. What God's law does is reveal to us the true problem. I like how Charles Hodge says it. He says, it, referring to the law, produces the state of mind which is a necessary preparation for the reception of the gospel. Conviction of sin, that is, an adequate knowledge of its nature and a sense of its power over us, is an indispensable part of evangelical religion. Here's the key. Before the gospel can be embraced as a means of deliverance from sin, 
we must feel we are involved in corruption and misery. You have to know the sin that condemns you before you, know the, before you can know the Savior that can save you. And it was this very commandment before us this morning that convicted Paul. Here we go. Paul in Romans 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. This seems right. For I would have not known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. It was this very commandment which convicted the Apostle Paul, who is at one time a self-righteous Pharisee named Saul. And that he, he thought he was a righteous man, but he found he was not the righteous man he professed to be or that he thought himself to be. And notice what was at the center of Paul understanding this, the sin of covetousness. God's law brought conviction on Paul. And it wasn't the law that was the problem. Notice he says, the law is not sin. The law is not the problem. And just a few verses later, he actually declares the law holy. Sin is the problem. And it's the law or the commandments that comes and shines a spotlight on that sin, making it alive and him spiritually dead. To say it another way, in Paul's life, the law exposed the sin that had been there all along. It lay dormant for a time, but when the wind came and stirred up the dust, it showed what was there. The problem isn't the wind. The problem was the dust. The problem is not the law. The problem is sin. We have a huge problem. It's called sin. And if it's left undealt with, the consequences are tragic. It's eternal death separated from God. Church, as we've gone through this series in the Ten Commandments, it should have caused us to realize our need for deliverance from sin. Paul calls us to examine ourselves, to test our faith in 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Do we feel the weight of sin in our lives? Do we feel the weight of breaking God's law? We should, and it should put us right at the feet of Jesus. To begin to close, I want to take you to one last portion of Scripture this morning. So turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 6. I want to take you to one final list, just to make the point more clear in case we have to. 1 Corinthians 6. I hear pages turning. I love that. Don't trust what the screen says. Look at it. 1 Corinthians 6, starting in verse 9. Or do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Paul is characterizing here once again the unrighteous, saying that they will not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And once again, we find right in the middle of this list is covetousness. Now, the ESV, the translation I use, translated that word as greedy, but it's the same Greek word that's translated covet in other translations. If you read the New American Standard, it'll actually say covetousness or covet. 
So once again, we see coveting has no place in the believer's life. In fact, we won't turn there, but Ephesians 5.3, speaking about the characteristic of God's people, Paul says coveting must not even be named among you. This is a serious offense to God, one which we are all guilty as we have seen. Beloved, I, I want to leave you with this, though. In 1 Corinthians 6, we must read the next verse. And you were, I'm no hoping I was going to get there because I cut it off. But the next verse, verse 11, is probably one of the greatest verses in all of Scripture. Why? Because it points to the power of Jesus to save people from their sin. It reads, there's that whole list. But now, what does Paul say? And such were some of you. Some of you were immoral. Some of you were idolaters. Some of you were adulterers. Some of you were homosexuals or thieves or coveting. Some of you were that. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. All the lists mentioned this morning, including this last one, points to the characteristic of the unrighteous. It points to those who are not saved and will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why? Because they are not in right standing with God. They're not in right standing with God. Church, what verse 11 says here is that there is a possibility that that standing can change and that sin can be forgiven. But you might say, oh, I've, I've dishonored God. I've, I've put things before him. I've, I haven't honored my mom and dad. I've been angry with my brothers. I've, I've lusted in my heart. I maybe have even committed adultery. I've been a thief. I've lied. I've coveted. All of us in this room stand condemned based on the law of God. But all of us in this room can stand forgiven based on the grace of Christ. Because such were some of you, but you were washed you were washed. You can be given a new life because Jesus doesn't save you on your deeds. He saves you according to his mercy by his regenerating and renewing you with the Holy Spirit. It's, it, in Christ, you're a new creation. And such were some of you, but you can be sanctified. You can be set apart. You can be given a new nature that craves new things, that desires new things, that speaks of a new behavior because sin's total domination can be broken. And such were some of you, but you can be justified. Your standing has changed with God. You're no longer among the unrighteous ones because God has justified you, because you're clothed in his righteousness, because instead of your sin, what God will see now is Christ's righteousness that's been given to you. It's his righteousness credited to you, to me. We're declared innocent. The penalty has been paid because Jesus went to the cross on our behalf, and through his resurrection from the dead, he has provided for our washing and for our sanctification and for our justification. Church, this is the greatest news ever. Yes, we're all lawbreakers of God. Yes, we've all stand condemned before God. But the moment Christ enters in, that all changes. It makes no difference what, you've, what you were before, you were saved because God can save any sinner from any sin and all sin. All who call on his name will be saved. Yes, without Christ, we stand hopelessly condemned. But in Christ, there is now no condemnation, as Romans 8 says. You are set free. You are not set free to sin. You are set free from sin. 
I can't give you anything better. I can't, I can't leave you with anything better. There's nothing else worth ending this whole series on than the hope and truth of the gospel. Christ came to save sinners. His love was poured out on the cross at Calvary for you. So run to Jesus. There is now no condemnation. There is now a peace with God. There is now a restored relationship because Christ can break through it all. And church, that should leave you not only with a heart that's bowed to Christ, but one that is content. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that, Lord, you did. You came to save sinners. And no matter how often I say it or preach it or we hear it, Lord, it is still an amazing thing. So I I pray that it pierces our hearts in in a way this morning that we need to hear it. Lord, I pray if there is unconfessed sin that we confess it. Lord, I pray as as we as we desire to follow you, that you would give us that new heart, that you would keep refining us, keep sanctifying us, Lord. We know that's a process. So, Lord, I pray that we all desire that. I pray that's what our desire is, to be more Christ-like, to be more honoring to you, to be more worshipful to you. So, God, give us that. In Jesus' name, amen.